Hi, hello, I'm Katerina, your creative guide living in Northern England. You've just joined Creators Abroad's podcast, and this is going to be quite a journey. We're learning how to take risks, find opportunities and spark our imagination. Above all, you'll find out how to build a new life anywhere in the world, and most importantly, make a living as a creator. To do that, I've got another awesome guest with me today, previously music lecturer, currently psychiatrist, Dr. Christian Heim. Okay, so we've all heard of the mental health epidemic. There are tons of brands, celebrities, public figures, normal people talking openly about mental health problems. You might be wondering why? Why is this such a prominent issue in society these days? It's almost to the point of we all feel like we need our own mental health problem. The truth is, we've always had these issues. However, our lifestyles were significantly different before technology and the internet, both of which are playing a role in making more of us feel low, just not vibing, just not loved or belonging. A major factor in this whole mental health crisis is social media. Common symptoms of using social networks are low self-esteem, depression, body image issues, anxiety, isolation, suicidal thoughts. However, we often talk about the user's experience. But what about the creators? What about the YouTubers, podcasters, bloggers, TikTokers, IGTVers, the ones who consciously take the route of being an online personality? And guess what? This can sometimes be normal business owners too, who are pulled into this online space. And this space can be devastating. The solution is not deleting social media forever. It's not going to happen. The internet's here to stay. And we're online content creators. So we can't delete social media. So how do we understand the issue and deal with it? Well, Dr. Heim has kindly agreed to share his insights on the matter. Welcome to the show. Christian. <laughs> Thank you very much, Katerina. It's wonderful to be here. Okay. So that was quite a long introduction, but it's a topic I feel very, very passionate about. And I think there's really like very little said about creators and the kind of mental situation for them in the online space. So, but just to start off, can you give our listeners an idea of who you are by introducing yourself in the style of a film trailer? Okay, let's do it. Okay, film trailer. Hello, I'm Dr. Christian Heim, clinical psychiatrist. I've heard the stories of thousands and thousands of people. Behind the closed doors of my office, I got to know their thoughts and their feelings. We work very deeply, very honestly, and very trustingly. These are real people, people like you and me, and they happen to have mental illness. But this distinction, this us and them in mental health is breaking down, you see, because we live in a society where we expect half of the whole adult population to qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis. Mental illness is rising and it's not our genetics, which haven't changed appreciably for about 60,000 years. It's the way we live. It is a society that you and I have created. And it breaks my heart to see the suffering that we put ourselves through and we put each other through when we could be resonating in a lot more harmony. That was beautiful and so true. And credits, credits start rolling, okay. <laughs> this is only the trailer, you know. <laughs> oh, the trailer, okay. <laughs> Scene what? Who is affected by the mental health epidemic? So you like eating celery. I just found this really interesting because I also eat celery. Okay, so do you? Do you like eating? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, you play piano, and you're an award-winning psychiatrist. So 
You've received many awards for creativity and innovation, as well as critical reasoning in science. So it's kind of like combining the creative and the scientific fields. And you've obviously had a fascinating journey of going from lecturing music to studying medicine and eventually specializing in mental health. Now, just to know a little bit more about you as a person, because I mean, what we're going to talk about is really about us as people. Can you elaborate on why you became a music lecturer and then changed your career path to psychology and how these fields intersect currently in your practice? Okay, so Katerina, the first thing I need to say is that I never play piano, practice psychiatry and eat celery at the same time. Right. So uh, when I was at school, my first love was actually medicine. I always wanted to be a doctor and that's what I was aiming for. However, at the end of high school, I didn't get enough marks to get in. So I chose actually my second love. So my second love is actually music. And I've had this amazing journey through music. In fact, I don't think I could have been a doctor straight out of high school because I was very idealistic. I was very passionate. And I, I think I would have found the discipline and some of the injustices and some of the, ooh, the ethical challenges in medicine just a bit difficult for me at the time. So I had this whole 15-year career in music. And um, my main thing was actually writing music. And I became a lecturer. But my ideal of healing the world through music didn't quite come to pass. So my spouse said, Christian, you've got to become a doctor. And her idea was actually was that I become a family GP. And uh, she was a little dis bit dismayed when I came home and said, I am going to become a psychiatrist. So uh, when it came to specializing, I narrowed it down to cardiology, heart sort of stuff, or psychiatry, which is actually a doctor of the emotions rather than doctor of the brain, which is neurology, or a doctor of the mind. And we haven't really quite defined what a mind is. So being in mental health, however, gave me access to what was perhaps the closest in creativity, emotions. So that's just a little bit of how I got there. Okay, well, that's really, really interesting. So my own interest in, well, it's more in the psychological fields, come from my mom who she's a psychologist and I know there's a difference between psychiatrist and psychologist but I mean that's just where my my own interest in all of the workings of the emotions and our brains come from so you mentioned the healing power of music now this is something I believe in because believe it or not I actually studied music I originally wanted to be a concert pianist until I realized there's a lot of competition out there but lovely you... that is so lovely <laughs> so I, I always think about it always will have that room but anyway so you incorporate do you incorporate the healing power of music into your work? I think you do. I think this is what... Okay, I, I, I'd have to say that I um, incorporate, uh, incorporate it more into my research rather than my mm. actual work. So it's it's not as though, um, you know, sort of depression, I'll give you five bars of Beethoven here, whereas for anxiety, we'll use the whole of this Bach prelude. Although I do have occasions to say things like that, but they're not what you call mainstream psychiatry. Yeah. Okay. All right. But I mean, it is a factor in your general thinking and application. So you've helped people with a wide range of issues. And um, I mean, it's quite interesting looking through your work itself and what you've done on, for example, just how healthy relationships is a preventative measure for things like anxiety and so forth. And also your dif the different takes on love. I mean, we at some point we can do a different recording on that. <laughs> but um, your primary focus is preventing depression, anxiety, suicide, etc. through the alignment of brain chemicals. Now, this is where it gets a little bit scientific because people don't always understand why we feel those things, but it has to do with things happening, well, the brain chemicals. So you'll be able to explain that a lot better. But with the internet, social media and our hectic pace of living, which you've touched on in the trailer, we're experiencing a mental health epidemic. So this is undeniable. What exactly is this epidemic? Because, I mean, we can talk about things like, oh, yes, we really are experiencing a lot of mental health issues without actually knowing what we're referring to and understanding why it has happened in the first place. Okay, so uh, to answer that question, that's a huge research question. 
And um, because there are so many factors that are uncontrollable that have come together to create this situation, it is very difficult to say, this is it, this is it, this is it. And I suppose even in social media, we think about one question has to have one answer. Uh, and then let's let's go for it. But things, as you know, Katarina, are a lot more complex than that. So a lot of things have woven themselves together at this time and place for us to be at the stage where we have this mental health epidemic. And as you said, one of them is the internet and social media. The internet is just a technical tool. We have used it for so much good, but it has some unintended side effects. And the side effects were the ones that you mentioned, isolation, loneliness, uh, depression, anxiety, and even suicidality. Is it just the uh, social media? Well, no, that may actually be the cause of something else that I believe articulates more of what we're going through. The more time that we spend looking at a screen, the, la the less time we spend talking to each other, looking at each other and interacting with each other. And we human beings are social creatures. We need each other. And so I think that the real epidemic is because we're losing each other. Yes. I mean, this is probably something we're going to talk about a little bit more, but that's that's the truth. I mean, if you just look at a train or any public transport, people sit there with their phones. It's like they're glued to it. And then you go to a restaurant and even though it's a social context, it's almost exactly the same thing. So we've lost this ability to interact, <laughs> to talk, <laughs> to just make a conversation. Well, yes, yes. And because of that, uh, the places in our brain that are used to making that contact, and I'm talking about the anterior cingulate gyrus, which is an area in the limbic system which is attuned to our empathy. It's, it's how we resonate with each other, how we get on with each other. Uh, studies from very heavy internet users shows that that area of their brain is shrinking because they are using it less. Now, that's actually frightening. That frightens me terribly because it means that our brains are devolving as we're doing what we're doing right now. <laughs> well, hopefully in terms of podcasting, it's not that bad. That's the that's the one thing. That's why I do this. And also uh, that's why I've got a production studio because I think it's kind of like a counter. But yeah, there's always that danger. So, I mean, I want to go in more into that. But I think just thinking about the certain groups in society who's perhaps more affected by mental health issues than others. So some common examples include celebrities, minorities and people who are poor. So this is de deviating perhaps a little bit from social media, just social media usage. And research finds that there is also an increased chance of depression and suicide amongst, like, for example, immigrants. So just thinking a little bit broader, not just every single person. So also more recently, it's become apparent that online content creators, and this is what I want to focus on in particular, are suffering from devastating depression and burnout too. I mean, some of my listeners might be content creators themselves and would know what I what I talk about. And it's so hard to explain it to anybody, like, because this is a new profession, a new field because of the popularity of social media. And these people who have to create and put the content out there and have this constant schedule because everybody's on social media all the time, you know, um, and this includes YouTube. It's, it's in really, really hard. So my listeners are people who also, well, who live abroad or want to live abroad and they're artists and content creators. What circumstances contribute to increased chances of mental health issues. So if you think specifically about their living conditions. Oh, well, okay. So we have studies to, to show firstly that increased engagement with social media leads to isolation, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and increased mm -hmm. substance use. So that's, that's one area that people who are content creators are at risk at. We do know that there are increased risk of people uh, suffering from mental illnesses uh, in migration. But the causes of that are, are actually quite varied and it comes down to individual circumstances. And it also comes down to choices that we ourselves make. For example, there was one study that, that showed that uh, 
when people migrate to another country, some of them will become more akin to the culture of the new country or others will keep their own culture uh, more succinctly and strongly. And it's not that one affects mental illness uh, more than the other, but what I wanted to emphasize is the difference and the choices that we can make in all of this. So when it comes to looking at thing, people who have migrated, it depends on whether they had trauma from where they came from, if they have trauma where they are, their family circumstances, and again, the things that I'm talking about has to do with their interactions with people rather than the migration itself per se. Okay, yes, and I think that's quite a, a important point to make is that it's not universal. It's not like <laughs> you're going to move to a country, you're going to suffer from isolation or anything like that. It's just like a high percentage of people who do. And it's very true what you say, like it depends on whether they've experienced trauma in like the place where they come from, for example, and having to deal with that in a new place where they perhaps don't have the same support structure. So it's a really important point to understand. And then I think more to just kind of focus on that point before we move on is what would you recommend for someone who's kind of like they've moved and they actually experience like that extreme feeling of isolation so even if they perhaps appropriated some of the culture where they moved to they still don't feel like understood and it's kind of like really really weighing down on them. This was me at some stage, sometimes. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, okay. So, so, so this actually comes down to a point yeah. that's actually very relevant and very hard to engage with on social media, and that is an individual approach versus a population approach. Mm -hmm. so, so when we talk, in a, even on a podcast like this, uh, we want information, and, and that means that uh, somebody like me has to say something that holds true for the whole population. And uh, mental health is not like that. Like if I did one of my other loves, cardiology, I could treat one heart basically the way that I would treat another heart, you know. But when it comes to people, there I have never seen two people with depression that are exactly the same. The circumstances of their depression are totally unique. So uh, for me to say to listeners, this is what you need to do, because I engage with people one-on-one, -on -one, I get to know that particular person and what that particular person needs. And I have found that it's just different for everybody. And I know this gets frustrating because I'm mm -hmm. almost saying nothing, all right? So I will say the one thing that everybody needs. Everybody needs people, right? Flesh and blood people. And when you're in a new society, that means being able to extend yourself somewhere to be able to make contact with people that are new. Because you know what? We all hate those conversations that go, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? Because decades ago, we didn't have all these conversations. We had them a few times in our lives. Now we have these sort of conversations almost on a weekly basis. Uh, and what we need is depth. We need to feel that we're getting to know somebody uh, as something more than just a stranger, more like a friend. Yeah, I agree 100%. And yes, so that's so, so important. And from my own experience of having had to move to four, well, a couple of different countries and having to have those conversations over and over and over again, it really does come down to those couple of people who you make a real attachment to. And then, and you don't need millions of friends, but it's having, finding that the people, first of all, that you can relate to and then establishing and developing the relationship yeah yeah so let's get really practical about that let's say you've moved to a new country okay strangely enough the first person you want to find is people like you people who have come from your country that have done the same thing i mean when i lived in uh in vienna we had a little australia we had people that would share their vegemite and uh, sing silly bush songs because that's what made us feel good so if, if, if you're from Iran and you find yourself in England, the first thing to do is to find out where the other people from Iran are or yeah. people that share your faith or people that share some of your interests. And then little by little, you'll reach out to people of the new society. But we actually start with people that we identify with. Scene two. Suicide risk amongst content creators. 
So, let me first paint the picture, just to put this into context. Now, of a content creator, that is, because not everyone understands what, what that means, what we do. Um, so, the pressure on content creators, people like YouTubers, so the, these are content creators, YouTubers, podcasters, bloggers, is immense. So, they have to produce content every single week, mostly. Um, I mean, they all have different schedules and you'll find all kinds of productivity tips and stuff for them. Um, but there are really three factors. The pressure to produce good, likeable, watchable content. So you're constantly in kind of like the public space. People can see how many views you have or how, not necessarily for podcasters, you don't always know how many downloads they have unless they make it public. But I mean, they can see how many likes. Um, on YouTube, you can get dislikes, you can get really bad comments. And it's to do this on a consistent basis. So regardless of all of those things that actually make you feel sometimes pretty bad, you just have to keep doing it. That's the nature of the job. And to deal obviously with fickle algorithms. So you have some bloggers, they build their whole blog, they start making a living and then boom, algorithm changes and they lose all their, their page views. And also, of course, internet users if you don't have content that people like, then you, you might have to reassess uh, what you're going to do. So how should we navigate the online space topped with the pressure of producing content in the sense that you must deal with both machines and people's expectations? Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer that as a psychiatrist, okay, <laughs> rather than, rather than a, a content creator. Yeah. Firstly, I really need to point out that machines do not have expectations, right? Mm -hmm. Any expectation that uh, a machine gives you in changing an algorithm has a person or people behind it somewhere, right? So uh, a disaster is a change in the algorithm and you lose a lot of listeners, okay? And you go, damn it, why did this happen? Uh, if you can actually take that as a group of people saying to you, we need you to move because the media has shifted, your market has shifted, and you actually take it as a hint rather than as a personal slight, okay? Uh, so that becomes a way of taking it, all right? So, uh, because the thing about online content is it becomes depersonal. It You feel like you are grappling with machines rather than people. Mm -hmm. And what I talk to uh, a lot of the people that I treat about is giving yourself choice. So if you're a content creator or an influencer, you are there by choice. And that takes away that stuck feeling. Now, I know you're not going to choose to stop. I know you want to keep going. I know that's a choice that's going to be made. But just to know that you are there by choice your human choice and that your destiny is actually in your hands as far as that's concerned, frees you up to sort of say, okay, there is a problem here. I have to adapt to find a way forward. Okay. Right. So that is you referring to, first of all, acknowledging that in fact, the machines are just people as well, <laughs> trying to give you hints and then having the awareness to identify a problem when there is one and you need to take a step away is that it well that and also and this is going to sound really hard not taking things personally because unfortunately what happens is people make criticisms and say some dreadful things online for the very fact that they think that they're talking to a machine they do not realize that there is a human being behind there, somebody of flesh and blood with feelings who actually uh, will react against what you say. If that influencer was right in front of some of the people who leave comments, I don't mm -hmm. think they would leave the comments that they do. So there is still something in this machine thing that means that we are depersonalizing each other. And I suppose that is the, uh, the danger and because of that, we try to make it as personal as we can. And this is my theory that the influencers, the content creators, see their audience more as people than the audience see the content creators. And I think that's a very dangerous situation. And it's a very sad situation, actually. Yes. And I mean, that's exactly why there's this pressure of you actually having to be like a machine like yes you know it's it's weird to think that you're a human you're a person you appear 
online in content or your voice or whatever it is yet you just have to be there as if you're not human you just have to be there 24 7 basically uh, post every day on social media whatever it is and sometimes we also place those own expectations on us because we think that's what people want instead of just thinking that you still need a balanced life. <laughs> yes. In fact, let's get some, yeah. to some very practical things as to what to do about it. Uh, firstly, if you're an, an influencer or your life is in front of social media somehow, then first thing to acknowledge is this is not life. This is only a part of your life. Your life is actually the people directly around you. Uh, it's not the people out there. Unfortunately, we live in a society that values fame, success, and money. And so we think that that is life, but that is a fallacy. It is who you say good night to every night. It is who you say good morning to. It is who you hug. It is who you look into the eyes of and share your life with. That is real. If you had a choice as to what to lose, please tell me, influencers, that you would rather lose your social media than your family and friends. Oh, my goodness, that... <laughs> That's so powerful. And like, I think it's so true. I think the thing that happens to a lot of us is that we, our lives start, <laughs> I don't know what's the word, like migrating almost, or it's, it becomes our online life is our life, literally. Um, I'm actually in the process of making a YouTube video just about this, but in a funny way. I didn't actually think about this in like a like a mental health kind of way, and that it's a bad thing. I was just like, oh, this is my life. This is what I do. And without it, like I would not be happy. But I think that's exactly what you just said. That's the the danger. Um, yeah, just on balance. Now I think at the same time as we get so pulled into our online space, our presence producing content on a, a consistent basis and we lose touch of the world around us. This is actu actually what the YouTube video is about. Um, and our wellness, our, you know, exercising, healthy eating, all of those things kind of go downhill a lot of the time because we're so absorbed in what we have to get done and the expectations, both real and imaginary that we place on ourselves and that we think other people have of us. So, can you just explain the link between the two and maybe give us also some idea of how to... So once we've acknowledged, okay, well, we need to make a couple of changes, what are some practical things we can do? The first premise that I want to give is that our work-life balance, like everything else in our society, is becoming commodified. So we're encouraged to have a balance with things like good food. Just had a little disaster here. Good food and exercise, and both of those things can become commodified. So people can sell you certain foods, you can go to a gym, and those activities actually are trumped by the most important balance that you need, and you're going to hear a lot of this, it's people, it's people, it's love. So if you are exercising, exercise with somebody. If you have a certain diet, have a certain diet with somebody, uh, because that's Okay, so we, we go through all of these parts of the world where people have longevity. We look at what they eat and we think, okay, this is what's healthy for you. We fail to recognize that in all these parts of the world, people are socializing with people that they love. They eat and laugh with people that they love. And perhaps it's the people around them that's giving them the longevity, not just the food itself. So the first thing I want to say to keep that balance is, yes, keep a balance, but don't sort of go, okay, I've, I've got to exercise, I've got to eat, because then you get more scheduled, more task orientated, and you end up having less time for the people around you. Oh, I've got to go off to the gym now. Don't let gym trump the time of just chilling and laughing over some some stupid gag that your roommate played on you, okay, or some dumb jokes that your dad made, all right, or some silly habits that your love partner has. Laugh about those things. Spend time just talking garbage, just spending time with people. We don't always need to be productive. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I do need to hear that. I'm one of those people who just like, I love schedules. So, I'm like, healthy living. Okay, I'm just going to schedule it in. And then it's like everything else. Um, in terms of people, I think it's such an important point that you're making because 
it's something we take for granted. We think they'll just always be there, but like currently I need to go to the gym. I really do. <laughs> they'll be back. <laughs> they'll be back when I come back. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's not that that's exactly the problem. That's why we we start becoming overwhelmed by our own schedule and we don't have enough of that laughter, that just kind of like free conversation with the people around us. So excellent advice. Not only that, because we we got into this situation uh, through a lot of movies made in the 30s or the 50s where we saw somebody left their hometown to make it in the world and then they come back and, you know, sort of they're the big person. But what we fail to realize is absolutely everybody in that hometown now is going out to make their fortune. And when people come back to that hometown, there's nobody there because we took them for granted and they're all gone. And too many of us, and Katerina, you would know people like this, okay, they have forsaken their family to do something worthwhile online, but then they've lost all contact with the family because that success became more important to them. And I'm here to say that you can have both. You can actually have both. Keep your family and do the online stuff. It feels so much better. Okay, well, that's great to hear. And this is something I'll definitely be thinking of uh, in deeper, well, in much more detail and also thinking of my own lifestyle and how what changes I can make. But now imagine that you've got the content creator with all of the pressure. Maybe they've not really reached that balance yet um, because, I mean, that in itself, it takes time and they're living in a foreign country. So they're that person who went elsewhere to make their fortune. Um, because of the isolated position that they're in, they actually start their online platform. This is a way for them to connect to other people. At least initially, that's the idea. This is why I started a blog. This is not entirely why I started the podcast, but it was part of the reason. So this could be to connect with people back home, trying to show them like where I am, what am I doing now? Or it could just be to find a like-minded community online. So it, it helps with the loneliness aspect of things. But at the same time, their real life circumstances might not actually allow for a safety net when things don't work out online. So this actually describes what happened to me. Like I had a blog when I just moved to England. I didn't understand how it worked. I thought I was going to connect with loads of people. And it actually turned out to be not necessarily. Actually, it was kind of successful because I did connect with a lot of musicians and I did this, but it did never brought in a living for me. So I stopped. But anyway, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Enough about me, especially considering <laughs> the saturation. <laughs> I was like, this is a different story. I don't want to tell it. Um, <laughs> so especially considering. So nowadays it's so difficult. You want to be a podcaster, you're like super amped, but the 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 space is saturated or it's becoming increasingly saturated it's difficult so what is the most effective action a creator abroad can take to manage that anxiety depression and unfortunately these things do culminate they do end up in a kind of like suicidality or like suicidal thoughts so what is the most effective action we can take the most amazing thing about the human brain is its ability to adapt. So that means to be able to change when circumstances change. And we live in a society that values some very, and I hate to say this, but some very empty things. Uh, and we're talking about fame, fortune, and celebrity. And so there are so many people who want these things. Mm -hmm. um, I would encourage anybody who wants to become famous to actually look at the stats to see how many people in this world become famous and what your chances actually are before you give up the rest of your life for it. So when I say that the brain can adapt, when you find that you're getting depressed and anxious, which unfortunately is inherent in working on, uh, with social media, then to take a step back, particularly when you're in a foreign country, to say, okay, what is my life actually about? Is this actually what I wanted my life to be? Didn't I take a few things for granted that I thought might always be there that I don't have now? Because the unfortunate thing is wherever we put effort means we have to take effort away from somewhere else, which means everywhere we win something, we lose something else. And this is not talked about on social media because if you look at celebrities, we think that they have it all. But you read their personal life and you think, oh, they gave up a lot. And I mean a lot. 
And so to take a step back to say, this is me, I can actually choose. Do I actually want to be on social media? Is it time to try something else, given how saturated the market is? Or is this my actual passion? Will I continue with this, making sure that I have my love needs met? My love needs in friends, family, and of course, an intimate love partner. Because we can't take those things for granted anymore. That's what we're losing out on. Yes, once again, that's so applicable. And I think sometimes we're scared to admit that we can, we don't have to become famous. <laughs> you don't have to, you can still be a podcaster, you can still be a YouTuber, but you don't have to be one of those YouTubers where everybody knows who you are. Maybe you don't even want to be that kind of YouTuber. I mean, nothing against them. I think, well, they do what they do, but you just have to assess what kind of lifestyle you want. And it, I mean, yeah, that's what it comes down to. Yes, and, and there's a difference between fame and recognition. Fame is something that we can't actually control. But if you think that you are giving something worthwhile, then quite frankly, what people crave is recognition. And recognition may be a few thousand followers rather than a few million followers. Uh, yeah. Because deep inside, when you've got that feeling, you know what, I'm making a difference and I'm doing what I believe is right for me. That's a wonderful feeling that it's very protective for mental health. Yes, and I think that's a, a big transition that's difficult at the start when you, you're just entering the online content creation space is understanding exactly what you've just explained, that there is a massive difference between recognition, somebody saying, actually sending you a message or just, you know, acknowledging, well, your work's really great as opposed to you suddenly becoming famous for whatever it could it, it could even just be a viral video that had absolutely no meaning so for <laughs> me <laughs> yeah that's true it happens and then people like me who like we i put like everything into my content i'm that's like right. why don't i just make a silly video and then you know i get millions but the thing is that's not sustainable that's not actual career that's not actual impact and you need to um people just need to be aware of that when they they're working in this profession. And Katharina, the wonderful thing about what you just said then is you gave yourself choice. You, you actually said, well, I could stop doing what I'm doing here and do this TikTok video that'll get me such and so many hundreds of thousands of views. And you went, no, nah, I'm not going to do that because you could, but you gave yourself choice. And that then gives you self-respect and more belief in what you're doing right here. And that feels good and it's protective for mental health. Scene three, what is the danger of overexposing mental health issues and how to get help? While there's a lot being done about mental health awareness and even on their social media platforms, we see a lot more of this. I find that there's a danger that we're overexposing the issues online and that can lead to dumbing down the actual problem because suddenly everyone feels like they're suffering from it and it, it becomes a bit hard or it becomes hard to distinguish the people who are really suffering from it, people who are really on the brink of going like not coping with their lives and people who it sounds terrible to say it this way, but it's true. People who want to put blame on something else, um, so they're looking for an excuse. Would you say, according to you, according to a professional's opinion, what is the increased awareness of mental health issues making it hard to distinguish between people who really struggle with their mental health and need help and those looking for an excuse? So, Katerina, I've, I've got to preface this by saying we don't have the scientific studies to answer that question. And I feel that aside from you having a beautiful cat, that <laughs> you've just shared uh, your personal viewpoint. And I have to say, it's full of insight. There is an insight there that there's something going wrong. Uh, this isn't all good, this awareness of, of mental health. And uh, as a clinical psychiatrist, I can say that what you're saying is right, that it almost becomes like, oh, has everybody got a mental illness? I must have one too. Which one is mine? And so it becomes an identity issue mm. where people are almost, almost looking for a mental illness 
because it will become part of their identity. Whereas the people who have um, mental illnesses that are life-threatening and are difficult to manage yeah. are finding this situation very difficult. And I, I do believe that what you're saying is right. And because uh, our practice, uh, that is what happens on the internet, is far ahead of what our studies can actually show, mm -hmm. that we are normalizing far too much. It's almost like seeing all those operations on these television shows, okay? We've, we've almost got to become ripe to see open heart operations or blood spurting here as though that happens as a normal occurrence. Whereas if those things happen in real life, it's shocking. It's really hard. It's yeah. really confronting. But when we talk about things and normalize them so much, people almost feel as though they're missing out if they haven't experienced something like that. And I hasten to say there is no scientific evidence for what I'm saying. I'm just using my clinical insight. And now I've got to give you the other side of the coin. Because decades ago, we, mental health issues were too hidden. We wouldn't talk about them. They wouldn't come out in the open and too many people were suffering in silence. So now we have a situation where we can talk about it. Good. We do all of that. But perhaps, perhaps, and I'm with you on this, Katerina, the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. Yes. I mean, it, this can be quite a sensitive topic, I think, for people who feel like they Obviously, they suffer from mental health or a mental health issue, or they're very open about it on social media. But it is something like having had or having had experience of seeing like different patients my mom had to treat and the things that they went through. I kind of feel that those are the people who like their lives got shattered. And I mean, there are obviously loads of people out there like that and there is or like you said there used to be the stigma where we couldn't talk about it at all but on the other side when we just talk about it as if it's normal when we normalize it then sometimes those people with the real issues they start feeling like well it's it's nothing and they can't actually it's, I don't know it's weird to explain but they can't actually speak openly about it because it's it just a normal thing now. <laughs> so, you know. And it's, it's a weird thing to try to explain. And it's another example of how we can't find a simple answer for a complex question. And uh, so one of the real problems in mental health, as you know, is stigma. Thinking, oh, there's something wrong with that person because they have a mental illness. And the medical industry, to its credit, has been working for decades to bring down the stigma to say that mental illness is like any other illness. It's like having an ulcer, having heart disease, having a broken leg. It can be fixed. Go and see somebody about it. There's not something different about you. But can it be that it gets to the stage where we can normalize something so much that it becomes a desired experience? Now, when it comes to broken legs, people haven't gone out there and increased their amount of broken legs, all right? They haven't done that. So the evidence says, no, there isn't right? But, but unfortunately, we also know that we, as human beings, learn by modeling. So if there's a celebrity that, let's say, is a wonderful comedian, and somebody goes, oh, I wish I was like that comedian, being able to make all these wonderful gags. And this comedian comes out and says that they have a such and such of a mental illness. Then you go, oh, is it possible that there are some people saying, for me to be like that celebrity... It might help if I had a mental illness. Now, that is just a hypothesis. We don't have uh, uh, evidence for that, but we have some principles. We know the principle of modeling is a strong way that we all learn. And the other thing is the mere exposure effect, that the more that we open ourselves up to something, anything, the more we tend to like it. And that's so true. And I think that's what happens on social media too. And in terms of uh, for example, YouTubers who become openly expressive about, like, for example, suicidal thoughts, is that it has the opposite effect as to perhaps what they expect or perhaps, it, well, who knows what they expect, but it's actually people start idealizing it. And they're like, well, to be like a super good artist, I need to have suicidal thoughts. I mean, this is something that happens in real life and we don't don't realize that. And that, yeah, I mean, we can use so many examples in ter 
terms of artists and I mean the 27 club I think that's the reason there's a 27 club <laughs> yes that's right that's yeah, the reason yeah. there's a 27 club but uh okay so I was a musician when I was young and I had an extended emotional range right so my mm. lows would be lower than what people would expect and my highs were higher than what people would expect and you could see that what I'm describing pushes towards a bipolar illness do mm -hmm. I have a bipolar illness no is there an association between bipolar illness and uh, creative people yes there is mm -hmm. so uh, do we normalize that well all right so what what do we actually want we want people to be accepted in society but we want people's lives to actually increase in quality so on a practical note, if you're an influencer and you're deciding, do I talk about my own mental illness here or not, it becomes a double-edged sword. You're going to have some wins because of that, and you're going to have some things that are unintended side effects. And the idea would be to know your audience and know the light in which you are putting your personal experience, because there are some people that it can help immensely, but there are some people that it wouldn't be helping and could be actually doing the opposite. So we'd like to think that it's, that it's just one or the other, but unfortunately it's much more complex than that. Yeah, that's very true. It's a very complicated and sticky situation. I mean, just in me having prepared this episode, I was aware of the fact that if I didn't contextualize it really, really well, especially in the content I put on social media, I mean, I wanted to have a positive effect that people actually realize that there's a, the, these issues that we're talking about. But if I don't think carefully about how I approach it, then it might also have that opposite effect, which I obviously don't want. So it's very true what you're saying. Yes. And what you're doing really well, Katerina, is you're devoting time to a complex issue. Often when we don't uh, allow enough time, then we look for a simple answer. But you've allowed space for us to explore an issue so that somebody out there will be listening to it and saying, okay, how can I apply that to my situation? What can I actually take away from it after I've heard different sides from different people? Yes. Well, thank you for... No, no, thank you for exploring it because it's, it's very important to do that. So... Say for someone who's now in the online space, especially when they have entrepreneurial or a business side to it. So it can be really challenging to decide when to be open about depression, burnout or suicidality, as we just pointed out. I want to say it's almost especially if you've got a business. So sometimes being open about these things do make you vulnerable and open for attack. So people can actually decide and this is true as well they can actually decide they don't want to work with you so if you're a business owner you deliver a service you're open about a mental health issue they can actually decide well maybe not it can also be seen as a weakness what is the best strategy to use so for someone right now how should they approach their own opinions about mental health and how much should we share on our channels okay so the best approach is going to be the one that works for you all right. <laughs> the one that works for you personally. And I know that's a bit of a cop out, but I, I will just flesh mm -hmm. that out a little bit. When somebody yeah. takes an engineering job, they don't get up and say, um, I've had these mental health issues and I've had this heart attack. It's, it's like, we're not interested. We just want you to do your job. And that goes for a university lecturer, a teacher, uh, a bricklayer, a laborer, anybody. We want you to do your job. The problem of social media is that you as a person become commodified. And one of the ways that you can get more likes is by revealing more about yourself. And if you start revealing intimate details about yourself, you will find your following will start going up. But you're losing yourself. You know that you're becoming commodified. So somewhere in being a, uh, an influencer you have to draw a line and say, I don't want that part of me to become a commodity because you know that every part of you is the way you look, what your voice sounds like, the information that you put across. It's all a commodity, but it's not a commodity. This is you. This is you, a person. And those two need to be separate. And uh, I would say because we, we buy the commercial lie that 
what I have to do is get more and more likes. So if I do more and more of this, I'll get more and more likes. And then people lose themselves. And this happens to celebrities. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they can trust. And that puts them in a very vulnerable uh, position. And I'm talking about depression and suicide. When you don't have somebody that you can trust personally, where you know this is a person that just knows the real me, then you become vulnerable. So on a practical level, for everybody who's working on social media, Mm -hmm. decide how much you're the product and how much you're willing to give away of yourself personally before you start revealing things. Because teachers, businessmen, uh, entrepreneurs, engineers, they're not asked to give away their intimate details. They just have to do their job well. It's when the two blend that it becomes Mm -hmm. a problem. Yeah, and I think this is a real thing at the moment where personal brands nowadays, you start a podcast, it you get recommended to make it a personal brand. So you're the face, you're involved. And this is because people resonate with that, which is understandable. Like I resonate more with personal brands. But then exactly as you said, like you have to then decide how much of that personal aspect do you actually want to bring in? And what does it actually contribute to your mission so I think maybe starting at what is the impact you want to have that's a good place to know how much you want to reveal yes yes now just again on a practical side and I wanted to make this very practical and insightful because it's about taking action and helping ourselves but also people around us and understanding the issue for somebody who definitely feels like they're in that situation where the online space is getting them down (laughs) like there's no other way to say it like they feel bad like just as an example I don't go on TikTok that much but last night I just quickly went on and the TikTok effect (laughs) before like half an hour you're (laughs) you're still on TikTok and you're like what the hell (laughs) and then (laughs) I actually felt bad like it doesn't always do that sometimes I, I quite enjoy it but for whatever reason, the combination of content I saw, I felt bad. I was like, why did I do this? So for somebody who who actually feels the overwhelming bad of social media and they're an online content creator, what do you suggest? How do they get help? Okay. So uh, firstly, I want to talk in terms of brain chemicals because I I, I want to explain what TikTok did to you that Mm -hmm. bought them uh, an hour of your time. Mm -hmm. What we get from watching uh, a lot of videos is a big dopamine release. Now, dopamine mediates the feeling of pleasure, and it's wonderful. We love this feeling. We get dopamine hits from from food, from music, from sex, from talking to people. Anything we enjoy, just a little ding on our phone goes, oh, somebody wants to talk to me, and you feel this little bit of happiness. That's dopamine only. When you're talking to a person and you hug them or you reach a point of contention and then you resolve that and you get to trust each other more, that releases oxytocin. It's an amazing feeling. It's the feeling of love and trust with another human being. You can't get that from social media. Or the feelings of beta endorphins when you're laughing together with somebody, when you are crying together with somebody, when you are talking together with somebody, that feeling of belonging is mediated by beta endorphin. I I know it does a few other things, but it it does do the laughter and the music sort of thing and the togetherness. You can't get that from social media. And that feeling of a calm contentment, I'm at home here. Like, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to take off my jacket, I'm going to take off my shirt, and I'm going to relax, all right? I'm going to put my feet up that nobody else gets to see except my spouse. And that feeling of just, ah, being at home not having to put on a mask, is Mm -hmm. mediated mainly by serotonin. That doesn't come in those sort of amounts from social media. So what social media does, and this is how we can modify personality, is by pleasure. But it's pleasure only, which is why people feel empty after spending an hour and a half or more on sites like TikTok. And I don't want to demonize TikTok. There are plenty of sites that we can demonize, okay? (laughs) So practically, what can you do about that? And 
again, it comes down to making sure that you're getting your, not only your dopamine, which you can get from a movie or from social media, but also your oxytocin, also your serotonin, also your beta endorphins. That gives you a D-O-S-E, a dose of dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and beta endorphins. And where does that come from the most? People, people. (laughs) I I, I don't know if I've hammered this message home enough, okay? (laughs) It's so important, you can't. (laughs) No, but because we unfortunately take people for granted, and we all do that. I'm guilty of that as well. But Mm -hmm. we live in different countries. We live in different uh, cities, which means that we're communicating via social media rather than getting together and feeling the flesh and blood right in front of you. And that's what humans have evolved for, to live together so that we can all survive together. Yeah. Once again, it's just so important and I can't stress it enough either. Like we do take people for granted. We just do because they're there and they have no choice. They're there. So we're just like, they're going to be there. (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) well, it's hard for, for the person, of course, who's kind of like depressed and in the heat of, of low mental health. We, often don't think about the people who are closest to them. So talking about people now, often they could actually be recognizing warning signs. So I'm talking like, say, your your family, your friend, they could actually notice something is perhaps yes. not quite right, but not know how to respond or help. And I, from my own experience, find that people who have real mental health issues it's very difficult to know how to help them. And sometimes they're very resistant to help. They don't actually want to recognize the problem. They don't want to recognize the problem. That's yeah. that's a big thing. <laughs> um, so, and almost like for people who are bent on a decision to maybe end their lives, it's almost like it's so hard to, to turn that back for somebody else to help them. How do you, first of all, recognize warning signs that someone is actually on that path? And what is the best thing to do in response? Okay, so I'm going to separate mental illness from suicide okay. because they're, they're actually very, very, very different. Uh, and I'm going to talk about what to do and what warning signs to look at if somebody close to you has a mental illness because that's very important. First thing I want to let people know is trust your gut. If you feel that there is something wrong with this person that you are usually close to, then make contact somehow. Risk embarrassing yourself by asking, are you okay? I've just noticed that you're a little bit different. And people get hung up on this idea, how do I help somebody else? It's actually not your job to help anybody else. You do not have to be an expert. All that you have to be is a human being. And you may the most say, look, do you need to go get some help about that? You don't actually have to have the phone number ready right? Uh, You just have to say to somebody, look, I have noticed this. And because you and I, we're kind of connected. I I care about you. Just that feeling that somebody else cares about them. They will get some help, maybe not for themselves, but maybe for you or somebody else. Because by making that connection, you've just hauled in a rope. You've hauled in a rope to sort of say, we're part of the human race. Because I, I, I have this analogy where you imagine that we're all swimming in this society and we're all being pounded by waves. And the only thing that's keeping us safe is the ropes that we have with each other. And if you stop talking to your mum, okay, you've cut a rope. If you've lost contact with a friend, you've cut another rope. How many ropes can you cut before you don't have enough of a safety net going through society? And when you talk to a friend that says, hey, I'm, I'm worried about you, you're actually pulling in their rope to saying, hey, you're connected to me. I care about you. I want you to make it through society. So whatever the risk that you take, it's always worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a mouthful. I, I want to get on to suicide because that's a different one. I was going to ask now, like, what, what would you say in that case? Is it the same thing? Is it just reaching out and asking, are you okay? Always. It is always reaching out and saying, are you okay? And there are the one thing that we all need is a feeling of belonging. 
a feeling that we belong to the human race, that other people care about us, and having that feeling is protective against suicide. However, if somebody close to people out there have taken their lives, we do have a will that in the end we can control. And when I've lost people and Unfortunately, a side effect of the work that I do is losing people to suicide. What often happens is people stop seeing me and then they become suicidal a year or two later. And then people will ask, why didn't you go back to see the psychiatrist? And unfortunately, the answer is clear because they decided that they wanted to end their lives because they know if they start talking to me that I'm going to give them reasons not to do it. (laughs) (laughs) because that's what I do and I make them feel like a human being and they can go on but ultimately people have their own free will so it makes it a bit harder makes it just that little bit harder but more important to have those ropes and to be tied into the belonging part of the human race yeah well that was really really helpful to know because I think it's so difficult to sometimes know which actions to take, and especially if you've experienced it in your own life where you've perhaps had someone who took their own life and you're always going to think, like, what could you have done differently? But the, the thing is, it's just about reaching out, and if you keep reaching out, you are actually just being a human and you a friend and you, you, you know, pulling on their rope, like you said. That's right, Katerina, and if you're being human... You, you actually can't really make a mistake. I mean, I mean, yes, you may get embarrassed or you may say the wrong thing, but that can all be rectified. But in the end, they will know, my gosh, somebody actually cared. And that is a, a wonderful feeling. We all crave that feeling. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've shared. And it's been very insightful, very helpful, very just great talking, actually talking about this and you getting a professional's opinion on it. So thank you for joining me today, Christian. Look, thank you very much for having me, Katerina. I really appreciated it. So where can people find out more about you or anything you've got to offer? We have a website, drchristianheim, all one word, dot com. And we're on different platforms. Uh, you can find a few things on YouTube, a few things on Facebook, a few things on LinkedIn, a few things on Instagram. But the, the website is actually the, the central part of where you can find everything. The books are on Amazon, but the website will give all that information. Thank you for asking, Katerina. Okay, I'll definitely include the link to your website on in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go and have a look at that and at some of the content that uh, Dr. Himes created, you can do that quite easily. Now, <laughs> talking about life and oh, I was going to make it. I was going to make a joke talking about life and death matters. Um, we've got the quick round left, which is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Round forty-two. So it's just a couple of quick questions to end off our conversation. <laughs> if all social media platforms had to be deleted like tomorrow, which one would you keep? We can only keep one. One. One social media platform. <laughs> yeah. And YouTube's also one. So Okay, okay. I would I would have to say YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> yeah, because it's so big and it, it just it just gives such a variety. There's some wonderful stuff there. There's some not so wonderful stuff there as well. But um, we can all choose the wonderful stuff. Which one would you delete first? <laughs> Which would I delete first? Uh, I, I suppose Twitter. I suppose that that'd be the first yeah. one that I'd delete, yeah. Look, unfortunately, uh, in Australia, and I'm sure it's the same around the world, uh, we have had actual deaths because of cyberbullying. And uh, Twitter, because it is so immediate, uh, has had a big impact on that. Uh, and, and, so, and so as a psychiatrist, um, I, yeah, I get concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Because things just like travel really, really quickly on Twitter. Okay. Sum up Australian's culture in one sentence. Australian culture in one sentence. We're more accepting than we used to be. 
because uh, there's a bit of self-deprecating humour there in there. You know, sort of we uh, Australians tend to put themselves down, and that actually comes from a uh, a comedy that basically said that as Australians we're not as racist as we used we used to be, and mm. uh, in a way the whole world is a bit like that because uh, the more we actually uh, intermingle, the less racist we're becoming. In spite of what we think is going on in social media, uh, we're actually becoming less racist. And uh, I like the idea of accepting because Australia now has such a broad cultural horizon with so many different people from so many different places that, yeah, I'd like to think that we're actually becoming more accepting. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably have like a huge international community there with like all the people from the... <laughs> everywhere want to go to Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what important truths do very few people agree with you on? That society has to start looking at the big issues honestly. Uh, and unfortunately, that um, our commercially driven world has a lot to lose if we start looking at ourselves honestly. Mm. And I can't even say to you what we need to be honest about, because I don't think we have reached that space of honesty yet. I, I I think that we could actually get on top of this whole mental illness crisis if we were starting to be honest with each other rather than protecting certain interests. Yes, 100%. And last question, what would you do tomorrow if you were 20% braver? Yeah, I, this is this was actually a difficult one for me, Katerina, because uh, I get up in the morning and I, I, I actually ask myself, what is life uh, calling me to do today? And and then I go out and do it. So uh, I, I, I got myself into this conundrum where if I said anything, I sort of said, well, but then if I said something, that means I should be doing it, right? And I, I do like to think that I'm, I'm doing what I'm called upon to do every day. Now, that isn't conquering the world. That is making a difference in my small part of the world in my small way. Okay. I was going to say, isn't there just one thing, even if it's like, I don't know, I had somebody say they want to get a piercing. <laughs> a piercing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we can leave it at that if you want. <laughs> I'm sorry, Katarina. Maybe it's listening to more Messian or, or some, some composer that's really way out there, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean because I had to study his music. I actually tried to play some of his piano works and that's quite hard. Like, oh, but I got yeah. in. oh, good on you. Good. So, yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's something. That's something. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you know of anybody, a friend, a colleague, a loved one for whom this episode can be life-changing or who might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. It makes my day to know that this expert knowledge travels a little bit further and somebody new can benefit from it. Lastly, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, whether for a business or whether for fun, I have a nifty roadmap that will show you how to go from nothing, zero to something awesome that will pull together your social media, video, blogging needs into one beautiful haul. If you want a copy, head over to creatorsabroad.com forward slash roadmap. And that's it for me, guys. If you simply want to support the show, please follow us on Spotify, Apple, all those beautiful places. And... Join me next time for more narrative journeys of creators abroad.